Building off of Kevin, you know, when you're looking at a divided or sort of Republican-dominated Congress, at least in the Senate, the regulatory agenda is really going to come to the fore, much in the way it was uh, in the second term of the Obama administration. But this will be right out of the gate. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we take a look at the outcomes from the U.S. elections. We asked three experts to join us to shed light on what the energy and climate policies might look like under a Biden administration. And we also look at the mostly final makeup of the House and Senate and take a look at some of the changes at the state level. Our guests this week are Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners, Kyle Danish with Van Ness Feldman, and John Larson with the Rhodium Group. They joined Sarah Ladislaw to talk through their outlooks for energy policy, from presidential measures, rollbacks of the regulatory rollbacks, possible legislation, stimulus packages, and more. I'll turn it over to Sarah now to get the conversation started. Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of Energy 360. This is our post-election podcast uh, where we're going to talk about what happened in the 2020 election cycle uh, where we stand today, and what we expect that to mean for energy and climate policy going forward. I'm thrilled to have with us today three excellent uh, analysts, John Larson of the Rhodium Group, Kevin Book from Clearview Energy Partners, and Kyle Danish from Van Ness Feldman. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good to be here, Sarah. Thanks. Great. So just to orient our listeners, uh, we had an election last week. There was, uh, as we anticipated, there was a red mirage, there was no blue wave, uh, and there was delayed outcomes uh, to calling the election. In fact, as we sit here today, uh, we still have a president-elect Biden, but we do not have the president of the United States uh, saying that he accepts the outcome of the election. In fact, we've got something quite the opposite, which is uh, lingering investigations. And uh, only a handful of Republicans in Congress uh, actually saying that they accept the outcome of the election as it currently stands and not backing investigations. So we're very much still in a sort of limbo uh, at the time of this uh, of this recording. To, to go in just a little, uh, one sort of level deeper on the outcomes of the election, uh, we do have Joe Biden receiving the majority of the popular vote. Um, again, at this time, also the 279 uh, electoral college votes. The outcome in the Senate is uh, one pickup seat for Democrats. We do have expected runoff elections in Georgia that will take place in January for two Senate seats currently held by Republicans. Republicans picked up a bunch of seats uh, in the House as well, um, also did pretty good picking up two state uh, legislative chambers and a governor. So by and large, we still have a divided country. And we're all sort of, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about what that means on a host of policy fronts. And today, what we thought we would do uh, is spend a, a bit of time thinking about what that means for energy and climate policy. So we're going to divide this up into uh, sections, thinking about what it means for both stimulus, economic stimulus, and sort of ingoing uh, assumptions about what a new Biden administration might seek to pursue there. 
um, thinking about what it means for the regulatory agenda, and then finally thinking about legislation and then international climate policy. It's a lot to tackle, and we're going to try and get through it pretty quickly and, and try and make it an interesting discussion. I'm going to turn to Kevin to get us started thinking about what the response might be or what the ingoing steps might be for a uh, new president, new Congress, uh, thinking about the role of stimulus. And there was sort of this presupposition that there would be a big opportunity for stimulus to impact uh, spending on the energy and climate front. Not sure if that's what we expect to see going forward. So, Kevin, why don't you get us started with that discussion? Thanks, Sarah. So the the stimulus question was really one about big green spending in a recovery-oriented first quarter 2021 bill. And uh, the idea was that whoever controlled the White House probably had a Senate and House on their side, uh, or in Trump's case, maybe a divided uh, Senate uh, and House, different parties. But here we are with uh, still some uncertainty. And, uh, you know, as goes Georgia, goes the Senate. So as you said, those two January 5th runoffs will make a, a big difference. It looks like right now uh, Dan Sullivan in Alaska and Tom Tillis in North Carolina are on the winning side. So a 50-50 Senate would give Democrats control uh, with Vice President uh, Kamala Harris breaking ties and still leave room for a big green stimulus. Now, if you look at the Georgia races and how they break down, that's probably not that likely. Uh, it's possible numerically, but it, it requires a lot of things to go right for Democrats. Uh, and uh, some, some X factors could potentially affect that, including how, how Democrats campaign, how an outgoing Trump administration behaves. But it seems more than likely what you'll be looking at is a red Senate, uh, a Democrat House and, and Biden uh, looking to stimulus as a vehicle for several of the objectives he's enumerated, which are not just climate and and energy oriented, loath though I am to admit it, but also COVID-19 and economic recovery focused, which with environmental justice all kind of overlap conveniently into the climate agenda. The limitations are likely to be primarily in the person of Mitch McConnell, who will not want to give Democrats a big win without exacting a big price. Uh, that is not to say that McConnell will say no to stimulus. McConnell will say yes to stimulus. McConnell will probably also say yes to nominees and appointments uh, that a Biden administration will make. After all, Republicans will be defending 22 seats in the 2022 election right now, uh, which means they'll have a lot of exposure. They don't want to look obstructionist. But McConnell will make a deal in all likelihood. He made a deal in 2015 on oil exports for renewable power. So we know he can make that deal. If you look at the actual BTUs, this is kind of a wonky way to do it, but if you look at how that deal broke down, more oil went out on an energy equivalent basis then renewable power displaced gas on the grid in the years that followed that deal. So you could kind of say, okay, McConnell made a deal that was good for fossil energy. He's probably gonna to try to do that again. Uh, he might though make a deal that has nothing to do with fossil energy. Instead of SPR money, he might look instead at something like COVID-19 liability protection. There's other things McConnell might be willing to give up, but what it, it probably will involve is a smaller green stimulus. So instead of the moving forward act as a template with EV tax credits being expanded and extended, uh, investment and production tax credits being uh, extended and also made refundable or, or payable as a, as a cash payment at 85% value, you're probably looking at an, e, an ITC and PTC extension, maybe some biodiesel extensions, but not the whole kit and caboodle that the House passed uh, in July of, of this year. So uh, a smaller green spend and probably at a higher price. 
So I want to bring John and Kyle in here as well if they have some thoughts. But one ingoing question I've got is, does it matter that we seem to be on the cusp of another quite serious outbreak in COVID-19 that could last another couple months? I mean, so far we've had the election to distract us from the fact that there's another outbreak and the, the outlook looks like it could make for a rough couple months in the United States. Does that add a different feel behind what we're thinking about in terms of stimulus. You know, before the election, people kept thinking about stimulus as being, well, we'll be sort of in a post-COVID period of time. And so this suspended animation stimulus that we were talking about will go away, and there will be this sort of recovery-oriented stimulus. Does the not-so-great situation and containing COVID in the United States change your thinking about that at all? I mean, the stabilization package could still happen before the end of the year. It could be part of the outgoing Trump administration's package. If you look at where the states uh, are having the, the biggest problems with COVID right now, well, it's almost everywhere and growing fast. Uh, red states, states that have supported Trump, states with strong Republican alignments in their gubernatorial and state legislative makeup are still the ones experiencing a lot of hardship, which may be part of the reason why McConnell's willing to accede to Democrats' demands for state and local uh, funding to support governments that are wrestling with the, with the pandemic. John or Kyle, anything you want to add on that? So, Kevin, I mean, I guess this is John. I, one thought, and this kind of skips ahead a little bit to the broader legislative discussion, is, you know, in, in, in my view, the only climate opportunity was the big green stimulus opportunity that you described, that it's now much less likely unless Georgia surprises. And so I guess... The, the question really is like, once we get past this stimulus conversation, you know, do you see any other impetus for other opportunities to get a bite of the apple here on climate at all? Um, you know, or is this, are we really just at a first half of 2021 and, and that's it kind of situation? Well, so the dynamic McConnell has, I mentioned is the 22 seats to defend. The members in those seats are worried about primary challenges from the right a lot of the time. So anything that looks like a, a big green deal or even a small green deal or something that deals and is kind of green uh, probably isn't something they can support. Uh, so if you if you look at where there's room for, for agreement, uh, you've heard it before, you'll hear it again, CCS and innovation. Uh, repeat after me, CCS, innovation. Kevin, what about the contents of the stimulus package itself? You mentioned tax credits. Is this a tax credits only kind of vehicle or is there also going to be infrastructure, room for infrastructure week at long last? Uh, is there going to be room for other things in there or is it by virtue of being limited and smaller only going to have room for those types of tax provisions that you were talking about? Well, infrastructure is roads, bridges and also energy and roads and bridges are still a primary goal for most of the lawmakers who are trying to get infrastructure spending into their states and districts. Uh, so throughout the Trump administration, we kept hearing infrastructure and he kept mentioning bridges. Uh, I wouldn't expect that to change so much. It's a real thing. Uh, from, from a stimulus perspective, you know, there, there are second order energy impacts uh, that flow through too. Sometimes if you're looking at bond outlays that states can back, they can decide how to spend the money. Uh, if there's recovery zones, uh, sometimes there's opportunities for local allocation. So the green leading states could have some latitude to, to operate with the monies from the federal government. But no, I, I think we're, we're probably looking at, at, again, as John laid it out, the, sort of the, the big green packages uh, were a, a blue Congress kind of thing. John, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I, I guess you, you mentioned now a couple of different constraints on where, you know, where things can go. 
I guess another one that comes to mind could be just sticker shock, right? Like uh, the Congress spent three trillion already. Uh, there could be a lame duck bill that spends another couple trillion. Uh, then, then what this this scenario you're describing is at least probably another trillion. Uh, you know, so um, you know one one thought I've had is if everybody's happy spending money, you could maybe tack together a lot of spending things that a little every every side gets that you know one side gets their CCS and innovation, the other side gets the renewables, and then you could go bigger. But there's a different constraint, which is just adding to the deficit, right? At some point, and so I guess one question is. How real is that constraint as we move forward into 2021? Is that is that going to matter, or is um, is it going to be everybody perfectly happy to to continue to spend? The uh, the Treasury Secretary uh, yet to be named probably will suggest full bore Keynesian intervention. Uh, I suspect you'll hear similar things from Jay Powell or uh, whoever ends up uh, at the Fed at the helm, and uh, there's good reason for that. I think Congress's appetite to spend is there. Uh, but Republicans' willingness to adopt fiscal strictures uh, when Republicans are not in power uh, is something I, I, would, I would remember. Uh, they, they've done it before. They could do it again. Uh, and uh, there's reasons why they want some money to go to their states and districts, but they don't want to give out too many favors uh, when they're trying to win elections in 2022. Kyle, we should let you get in here before I say something impolite about Republicans remembering about deficits when they're in power. Okay, I'm happy to head that off at the past. Kevin, do you see some uh, scenario in which industry is coming to the table saying there are things we would like? Obviously, CCS is an example of that. But it seems to me, uh, you know, something in the sort of border area would be funding for uh, EV charging infrastructure. Does the, you know, power companies see a big, in a time of sort of decreasing demand for electric power, that's a potentially big future for them. Could you see them coming to the table pushing for that? And, and could you imagine Republican policymakers being persuaded in some way to add that uh, to the package? Or is it that just too green? Now, well, it has a little bit to do with what and why. So the EV tax credit originated at a time when diversification was the imperative and Republicans supported it. Uh, when decarbonization is the imperative and EVs are the solution, it becomes more political and different. When you look at the breakdown of fleets and states and you see that it's the blue states with the green car programs that want the EVs, it becomes more political and difficult. So it's not impossible, but uh, you know, the part, of, part of what you're seeing is Republicans in, in leadership roles in the Senate have adopted the Trump opposition to a lot of things. And I suspect that is likely to include, maybe not exclusively uh, rule out all EV credits within programs that can allocate funding, again, to states where Republicans don't have their hands on it. But this, looking like you're doing it for decarbonization, may be more politically difficult than it was for diversification. Okay, so one final question on this, and then I want to turn to the topic of regulation. Kevin, you've mentioned states a couple of times here, both in terms of their needs, but then in terms of their latitude to determine how they spend certain types of money they might get through stimulus. Do you think that they have much of influence on shaping what would be in the stimulus? Some, but not a lot. Uh, I mean, the, the states themselves, uh, that are the, the biggest urban centers are, of course, blue states. Uh, and if this becomes a partisan fight, then uh, a red Senate might have some, some things to say about giving too much too soon. Uh, but it does matter. Uh, it matters because voters matter, the economy matters. Uh, states themselves have to, have to survive. The plasticity of the economies that are bent out of shape and don't spring back 
because governments themselves are, are depleted, are part of a, a slow recovery scenario, more of a U or even an L than a V. And so Republicans are going to pay attention to that. They're going to, they're going to care. Uh, but I think we've gotten to a point now where I don't expect the, the blue cities narrative to disappear just because there's a new president. Okay, great. Thanks, Kevin. So a smaller, narrower stimulus, maybe a bit harder to, a harder fought battle to get it, uh, seems like a pretty likely outcome. Kyle, there's another huge port of this agenda, which is uh, which is regulation. Um, I can't remember if we're rolling forward or rolling back regulations anymore. We've been doing it so much, but there will be a re-roll back. I can't even remember. So there's going to be a lot that this Biden administration wants to do to get rid of regulatory rollbacks that the Trump administration pursued. There was lots of speculation about how to do this and also how to advance a regulatory agenda that, quite frankly, from the Obama years, you know, was pretty easy to roll back once uh, once there was a change in administration. So can you talk through how you're thinking about the regulatory agenda of the Biden administration? Then maybe we can ask you some similar questions. Sure. Well, you know, building off of Kevin, you know, when you're looking at a divided or sort of Republican dominated Congress, at least in the Senate, the regulatory agenda is really going to come to the fore, much in the way it was uh, in the second term of the Obama administration, but this will be right out of the gate. And as you said, Sarah, th- there's a huge task just to sort of roll back the rollbacks, whatever term we're going to use here, um, you know, by some counts, 100, 125 uh, rules that were rolled back by the Trump administration um, that there will be a lot of pressure to reverse, which will be a tremendous strain on the administrative capacity uh, of this administration from the get-go. And as you said, they're going to want to do a lot of new things. There's a lot of uh, imperative to come up with new regulations to address climate change uh, and greenhouse gases, particularly when you can't rely on Congress to do some of the work you were hoping it would do. At the same time, there will be a significant uh, new barrier out there, which is the very conservative judiciary Um, which is now uh, increasingly populated by judges and justices who have a real uh, skepticism uh, about administrative action and concern about regulatory imperialism um, and will look uh, uh, with great concern on adventuresome uh, regulation. Um, This probably creates challenges for something like coming back with the Clean Power Plan rule which relied on a somewhat novel interpretation of the Clean Air Act. However, I think it's important to point out that there's a whole scope for regulation that doesn't really require novel interpretations of these laws, but rather simply stringent interpretations of them. Agencies can use pretty traditional authorities uh, and use them fairly stringently. What you're probably losing in the bargain Uh, is some of the market-based flexibility that you might have preferred in some of these regulatory programs, and maybe, you know, ending up with uh, uh, regulatory structures that are somewhat more command and control uh, in form, but could be quite stringent. So I would expect certainly uh, a new look at power sector regulation, um, uh, and I think they could come up with something that would certainly accelerate the retirement of coal-fired power plants. Certainly looking to revivify 
bring back to life the methane standards for the oil and gas sector, and probably adjusting them to take into account significant advancements that have occurred in the last few years in methane detection uh, and abatement. And uh, some of the pretty ambitious commitments that oil, major oil and gas companies have made to reduce their methane emissions. So I don't expect simply uh, you know, bringing, bringing back the quad A rule as it was, uh, but rather probably a more stringent version of that program. Um, certainly uh, expect significantly stringent vehicle emission standards and putting back in place the waiver that California has relied on and other states have relied on to have their own uh, standards. I would also look for EPA and other agencies to be using other uh, regulatory programs aimed at conventional pollutants like ozone or particulate matter that can actually achieve significant greenhouse gas emissions as a co-benefit. Also look beyond EPA. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission will certainly get a lot of attention um, and will be expected to factor in climate change in a way that it has not in transmission decisions, in price control decisions, in citing uh, and approval of natural gas pipelines. And I would expect FERC to really open the door to state carbon pricing programs uh, in a way that uh, uh, now demoted Chairman Chatterjee sort of squeaked open the door. That door will come fully open, I would imagine, um, in the, a, a FERC with a Biden chairman. Look around the government at other areas as well. It's, that doesn't have to just be EPA FERC. I expect the financial regulators will be involved. There's going to be a push for the SEC to establish disclosure requirements for publicly traded companies that will force them to measure their exposure to the risk of climate change and the risk of climate change policy. We heard just this week Fed Chairman Powell uh, sort of acknowledge the systemic risk issues for banks and expect probably the Fed to catch up with essentially the central banks of the rest of the world in, in taking on that challenge. Although, as we've talked about, Sarah, it's a pretty complicated story in that area. Um, expect the government to use the power of the purse. Um, the federal government is an enormous purchaser of energy and carbon-intensive materials. I learned recently that the federal government, that something like 50% of cement purchases uh, in the United States are funded by federal dollars, whether directly from the Department of Transportation or through its funding to states. You could expect to see some sort of buy clean program that would start to impose uh, requirements on those sort of purchases that could drive potentially significant supply chain emission reductions. We could talk more about this. This will not be easy. This will be challenging, not just because of the Supreme Court, but for a host of other reasons. But I expect that would be the sort of agenda you'll see from the Biden executive branch. Okay, so Kyle, you've put a lot on the table, all really interesting things. I'm sure Kevin and John have some thoughts as well. The one thing I wanted to ask first is, could you give us a sense of process and timing? So there's a lot of expectation for a day one executive order that reestablishes or rolls back a bunch of different things. There was a lot of talk about reconciliation packages. What do you think are the 
nearest term things that are going to take place and what are some of the things you think will take longer? You don't have to be comprehensive, but just kind of a general sense of how we should think about timing for this agenda. Yeah, sure. It seems to me that the things that you can do in the sort of day one term are actions you could take to stop in in their tracks some of the Trump rollbacks. Um, Some of that involves uh, ensuring that they're not finalized in the Federal Register, um, uh, notifying the court that legal challenges should halt because we're going to revisit this. In certain circumstances, if uh, you can uh, delay the effective date of a, of a regulation. So those are the sort of things I expect on day one. Uh, the other day one thing will be personnel. Uh, it's going to take quite a group of people to sort of carry out um, this sort of regulatory agenda. Uh, these agencies have been cut back significantly. There have been sort of principled departures from some of these agencies. So bringing people back into the government who um, can utilize all this machinery in the right way, something that the Trump administration actually struggled with itself, um, will be a big challenge. So those will be some of the early steps. But doing these sort of rulemakings that I described, it's important to recognize that these will all have to be done through administrative processes, which means developing a record, putting out a proposal, taking comment, finalizing, and then surviving many of the inevitable legal challenges. So just finalizing a major rule can take two to three years. Um, And you'll have to launch all of this pretty quickly if you want to make progress in in the first and possibly only term that you have. Okay, John and Kevin, I know you both have thoughts, so let's start with John. Sure, uh, Kyle, that was a really great and comprehensive review. I guess uh, to the timing question, you know, we, we a roading group, see, you know, get a lot of questions now about what, what are emissions going to be, you know, what, what's 2030 reasonably going to look like from a target, given what a lot of what you just said, right, like given the timing of all these things. And Sarah, you and I first collaborated on the clean power plan work, right? And we know what that looks like. And I guess a question to you, Kyle, is like you've talked about when things could start and how long the, the initial process would take, but when would things start to bite? When would things actually start to change investment and behavior on the ground in the regulated industries? And just getting a sense of that would be helpful, I think, to, to maybe give people a, a feel for what, what to really expect as far as actual structural change. Yeah. First, my deepest sympathy to all modelers right now. Just, <laughs> We're having a lot of fun. It's <laughs> a challenging time, John. I feel for you and Kevin too. I know you. Um, you know, let's take something like methane standards. Um, part of the issue there is that it's you have to get a new picture of the of the methane emissions, uh, including from existing facilities. Something that the Obama administration tried to do at the end of that administration and was immediately rolled back. So maybe that itself takes, mm. I don't know, a half a year just to do that. But if you assume sort of a two-year or two-and-a-half-year rulemaking process um, to get to final rule, you typically allow a year or two for the rule to go into effect um, to actually have it bite. So it, it, it feels sort of like a four-year process before things start to, to bite legally. But as you know, um, all of the industries we're talking about are changing very rapidly. Yeah. And if they foresee a reasonably probable regulatory obligation in the future, action will start, you know, has to start before that. So you may see 
um, as you did with the clean power plan rule, even, even when that was thrown into a lot of uncertainty, a sort of trajectory of emission reductions that's anticipatory of, of future regulation, at least in part. Kevin? Thank you for such a comprehensive outlook. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about were, were sort of the meta regulatory parts in between all this, uh, how you look at what could happen on social cost of carbon, how how they'll address environmental justice and rules, and to some extent, you know, what a climate test. Biden campaign talked about a, a climate test for uh, for for energy exports, and what is all? How does all that come to play? Is there is there some sort of unifying doctrine we should look for? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think certainly we'll see the invigoration, reinvigoration of the social cost of carbon, and you see certain sorts of um, you know you see calls for like a climate czar who would oversee a whole of government uh, type of effort here. But I want to think more about this question of how you sort of realize this sort of climate test or climate model throughout the government. Because one of the challenges, as you know, is that all of these agencies are responsive to particular laws. Um, so they're, they're really carrying out their sort of, um, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the, you know, the FERC has its own particular authorities. And so it's not straightforward to insert climate into all of their missions in a way that has um, sort of regulatory bite in each of their actions. Um, so that'll take, I think that will take some work and creativity to think about how to do that. And of course, you're going to face sort of, as we said at the top, top of the, you know, this Supreme Court and set of, and set of judges all the way down who will be on the lookout for sort of um, novel efforts to draw outside the lines of your implementing statute, right? That will be like, no, that's not your job. That's not in, that's not in the Federal Power Act. That's not in the natural gas. You know, like this will be, this will be the legal challenge um, against efforts to sort of integrate that. Kyle, I, I sense attention. Maybe you've seen it too. The progressives have been saying, well, we should have been more progressive. And the, the more centrist members of the Democratic Party have said, wow, that really hurt us that we were so progressive. But I, if I had to ask which of these is more forceful, I don't think I have to look very far. Uh, progressives are better at Twitter. How does that tension resolve then? If you have this conservative uh, bench and these progressives who are pushing for for much, much more, much sooner. Is that, how does that tension play out in your mind? I think there will be a lot. I mean, I think in the first instance, in, in that sort of day one aspect of it, is who ends up in control of different agencies? Um, who are the deputies? Who are the general, you know, who are all those people? Um, do they come from a particular camp with a particular agenda? And is it like, hey, let's go for it. Let's throw the long ball, you know? Uh, there are only so many planes that can land on the runway of the Supreme Court. Let's go for it, right? So I think that will be one thing to watch. I still think, though, that where even the progressive voices might find themselves landing is that, hey, you know, we can still do very stringent command and control programs. The courts don't tend to second guess or are less likely to second guess an agency making a determination of what's technologically feasible. That's where agencies are on their safest, most traditional ground. So where, where even progressive folks may find themselves as landing more squarely on those sort of traditional uses of the regulation, but in very stringent um, uh, applications. So I want to turn to the legislative outlook, but one final question on the regulatory front. Um, 
And Kevin, I think this is something we talked about in the pre-election podcast uh, that we did with Paul Bodner, but it was around the idea of NEPA reform and NEPA as a vehicle moving forward in a Biden administration. And what made me think about it was this discussion that you're having about, you know, how do you take environmental permitting and review and, you know, reconcile this issue of a more stringent reading by the courts of what's sort of inside bounds and outside bounds. And quite frankly, if you look at the Biden administration's plans and structure and the way that they've talked about, the even the way they want to build back better, environmental justice and, you know, fairly different types of uh, ways of interpreting the impact of regulation it is going to play a, a major role in how they consider things if they adhere to those principles. Are there any big takeaways for NEPA reform or how we think about how that piece of this moves forward? It seems to me there's pretty broad discretion on, on how you carry out NEPA. Um, so an agency that wants in its hard look to be very discouraging of, of projects that have a significant climate footprint or a significant local community footprint, agencies can, can, uh, can push pretty hard on that if they'd like. So I think that's an element that you may see more of. I mean, consider also FERC, you know, which, which uh, uh, approves projects based on a public interest test. You know, you can imagine there'll be some pressure to sort of say, public interest, uh, we have to take into account climate impact. Um, so you can imagine that sort of um, approach coming into a number of areas. But with NEPA, you could see agencies pushing um, developers of projects towards much uh, greener alternatives um, based on EJ concerns or climate concerns. Thanks to Sarah, John, Kyle, and Kevin for their insights. Be sure to tune in to part two of their conversation. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. 